to transform lives when it works, and we have to help them through a difficult journey when it doesn't work. And we need every one of those people to feel the support that we give them. And, you know, we do really well in our patient satisfaction surveys, but, but not unbelievably well. And I'm much more anxious about it now, given our size and our geographic diversity, than I was when our staff meeting was 15 people in the entire practice. My podcast manager and my audio producer suggested something that the audience has been asking for for some time, which is, why don't you bring back episodes that were popular so we can listen to those again, maybe offer some new context and uh, go back in the annals of it and find things that you can listen to now to uh, see how they hold up the test of time. And so one that I went back to was episode 36 that's with Dr. Michael Levy. Most of you know him as one of the founding physicians of Shady Grove Fertility. And I put that episode to your attention now because a lot has changed with Shady Grove Fertility. When we recorded this episode, they were the largest practice group in the country, of course, this is three years ago. But they were, they did not have any private equity partner. They were not part of a network. They were almost a network in and of themselves because they were so big. But since then, U.S. fertility has come to be, they're backed by Amulet Capital. So now it, there is private equity behind Shady Group. They're part of a network that includes other practice groups. And in this episode, Dr. Levy talks a lot about partnerships with younger physicians and attracting younger docs. Well, what's that like now where fellows were not being offered 500K signing? is three years ago when we recorded this episode and I've seen that now and so how, how does that all stand the, the test of time at, at the time of this episode Shady Grove didn't have to necessarily itself and I, I'm not saying that it does that now but I, I this is a question that I keep forgetting to ask guests but when you belong when you're so big of a group and you're part of a network what happens? Like, uh, Shane bought a practice in Houston. And well, what if U.S. Fertility or one of the other groups in U.S. Fertility wanted to open a group in Houston? Um, yeah. So I want you to listen to this interview and see what uh, still holds up to you and see what you think is completely off from three years ago. And uh, then if you want to share that with me via email, then feel free to, and I will, uh, I'll, I'll get follow-up interviews. I'll ask these types of questions, uh, look into them. Um, but enjoy this episode about building a large fertility group with Dr. Michael Levy. I'm interested in this conversation mainly because I want to go into the brain of someone who helped found the largest fertility group in America. And maybe I'll back up and give a little bit of context because I think while we assume that everybody knows about Shady Grove, there are a lot of people in this country and other parts of the world that are listening that are just practicing medicine in their little practice that listen to this show. And they actually probably don't know a lot about you because they don't often check out uh, necessarily the, the other things that are happening with other people in the field, they're doing their thing. 
you're a group that started in Maryland, uh, in the, the DC area. You now have close to a thousand employees. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And how many REIs now? I started losing count, but I think <laughs> 58. 58, which is just an extraordinary number considering that a group that had nine or 10 would be, most folks would consider a big group. And I'm very interested in how that starts. So you're one, one you, you helped to, to found this practice. A lot of people will start their own practice and have 10 people work for them. And that's a good life and a good career for them. You've got a 58 physician group with almost a thousand employees now, 950 when we spoke to Marion Kreiner earlier in the show. Did you set out to do that? Absolutely not. So my goal career-wise was to, well, first of all, I had a mandate from my wife that I was staying in D.C., so I wasn't able to look further afield. There were no jobs available in D.C. I wanted to join Frank Chang, who ultimately became one of the partners in our practice. Um, But my goal when I set up this practice was if we had three or four physicians and did three or 400 cycles, I would have signed on the dotted line right then. So there was no grand roadmap or ambition created at all. Well, it wasn't an accident either because if it were an accident, everybody would have done it. How did it happen? So every quarter I speak to a new hire orientation. And these days that's about 25 or 30 people, which was bigger than our entire staff in 1991 when we started the IVF program. And I'll say the same thing to you that I say to them. We never had grand designs to, to be as large as we are. We focused on one core issue, and that led to a virtuous cycle, which I think allowed the practice to expand. Before I, I, You'll know what that is, but, but before I you know, articulate it properly, Paddy Stahl, who you probably know, who is you know, director of marketing or is our director of marketing, not the, not the correct title, by the way, it's a bit... She has a better title than that. But she started at the very beginning with me. And about seven or eight years into the practice, when we were about 10 physicians and growing rapidly, she was cornered at ASRM by a couple of physicians who said, okay, Patty, you've been at Shady Grove for eight years. What's the secret sauce? And she said, you know, the, the, the absolute central tenant of the practice is always do the best thing for the patient. And immediately their eyes glazed over and they said, oh, stop BSing us. We want to know the secret sauce. She says, no, really. She says, always do the best thing for the patient. And I think we, we've absolutely adhered to that. And that's allowed us to have patients feel very good and comfortable and refer their friends. For physicians to know that that's the, the way in which their patients are going to get treated. And what I mean by that is, not only do we have to have very good success rates, we have to be incredibly transparent with patients. We have to have financial programs that are affordable. And that in turn attracts physicians who want to work in that environment, patients and staff who want to work in that environment. We have very low staff turnover. In 28 years, we've had one physician leave the group. And that was because she got divorced and wanted to work part-time and live in California. No other physician has ever left the practice. And that, I think, speaks volumes to the environment. And we have a true partnership. We are 100% physician-owned, and we have 28 equity partners. And the model is everyone becomes a true equity partner. 
so everyone has skin in the game and feels engaged from day one. I don't even know how to break this out from here with 28 equity partners. Maybe I'll, I'll come back to that because I'm really interested on how you manage a direction with 28 equity partners. But let's, let's talk a little bit about doing the right thing for the patient. And I can see the physician's eyes glazing over when Patty gives them that answer. They're like, all right, and tell us, tell us what they're looking for one or two tactics, right? They're looking for something that's you know, a, a specific process that they used or some very specific thing as opposed to seeing it as an attitude. And I wonder if that just speaks to, well, there are hundreds of tactics, right? There are, there could be thousands. There are hundreds of different or dozens of processes. There's hundreds of key players. There's however many techniques, but they're all grounded in that one, in that that virtue of, of doing the, the right thing by the patient. I think we need to explore it a little bit more because to me, it just seems so subjective. And we were talking about this with, uh, I think I was talking about this on another podcast interview where I said, it's very often like the local restaurant owner that says, yeah, we've got the best service in town, but Sometimes they just don't. Sometimes there's just a local a local restaurant that perceives that they've got the best service and the place across the street does. So as you're growing, that means you, you've got to measure things. And now you have people in place like Marianne and Patty and, and some of whom started from the beginning. But when, when you're measuring in the beginning, as Michael Levy, someone that's starting off with a handful of docs and all, now you're... you're at, at nine doctors and you're going best. How are you measuring how you're, how are you keeping the pulse of how you're serving the patient? On a formal basis, we survey the patients on a regular basis and, and we get constant feedback. And we're never satisfied, which is good in your work life, not good in your personal life. So, you know, we, we're constantly pushing each other and ourselves and, you know, any negative feedback freaks us out. So we look carefully at you know, what the root cause was and, you know, and work on that. I think most importantly, we've attracted staff and retained staff who get that. And we, we were never good at, at letting anyone go, which was an early problem with Marianne and a more professional HR team. Occasionally, occasionally someone doesn't fit in and we will let them go. But I think that everyone is a role model for everyone else. So from the front desk or the new patient call center, you know, which was a, and modification we made about seven or eight years ago. You know, in typical doctor's offices, you know, you've got someone at the front desk checking you in, checking you out, answering the phone and making a new patient appointment. So when a patient calls our practice, we now have a, a call center, you know, in our office, very tr- well-trained individuals who know a lot about infertility, who give them a completely different experience with that first phone call. And we look at the whole patient journey and make sure that it's going well. You know, there's some large practices who don't give monitoring appointments. It's like first come, first serve. You can wait an hour or two for your appointment. You know, we're upset if a patient's not in and out of the office in 20 minutes for their monitoring visit. We'll bend over backwards because everyone knows. I had a patient last week who, with, with the floods in, in the Washington area, came in two hours late for her appointment and we'd already shut monitoring down. And a relatively new front desk person was telling her, well, you know, there's no one there. We can't do your monitoring. And she came to me expecting, I was going to say, yeah, you know, she's out of luck. It's two, two hours late. And she's, you know, very frustrated, you know, understood that she was two hours late, but she showed me a video of her basement flooding. 
and we turned the machines back on and we got staff there and we did a monitoring visit. And there was no question that that's what we would do. And I'm sure many, many practices would do that, but we're also modeling that for the staff. So that person at the front desk knows that, you know, next time there should be no question. You know, we're going to accommodate, you know, a, a difficult situation for a patient. So I think you create a norm. And when people come and visit our practice, almost across the board, what I hear is, what do you put in the water? You know, everyone seems happy. Everyone seems into it. You know, we remind our staff that we, we're so lucky to work in this field. You know, unbelievably motivated patients. We transform lives when it works, and we have to help them through a difficult journey when it doesn't work. And we need every one of those people to feel the support that we give them. And, you know, we do really well in our patient satisfaction surveys, but, but not unbelievably well. And I'm much more anxious about it now, given our size and our geographic diversity, than I was when our staff meeting was 15 people in the entire practice. I love that you just said that. I mean, you're, you're coming from a, a, a practice group that is doing very well, just in terms of what the practice is doing. And when it comes to when you're, when you're talking about patient satisfaction survey, you're like, yeah, we're doing well. We're not doing that great in terms of what I would want us to be doing. And I, I think that is pretty telling. I often hear people think, oh, we've got the best patient satisfaction, whether they're looking at any surveys or not. And I just, I often think about a lot of different groups. I just think, you're not hungry enough for me. You're not, you're not paranoid enough for me that somebody else could be serving the patient better. And I try to run my business in the same way. Every single thing, we're like, yeah, we could be doing that better. This is pretty good. We've had a lot of success with this, but I'd still like to be doing this much or have the client this happy instead of this happy. And I think that's a really important attitude. I also think the example that you gave about a woman comes in, she's two hours late, she shows you the video on her phone of her basement flooding, you make the call to turn the machines back on and get her in. That particular example, I think, is some version of that is one that I hear small practices tell a lot about the advantages of a small practice that that large groups don't or can't do. So, it, and, and here you are bringing up that particular example for you. How do you though, I mean, is it you, Michael Levy, that can make that call? I mean, are there, can an associate doc make a call like that? How do you, you know, when it's, when it's your practice and it's eight people on your staff, it's pretty easy to say, okay, this is my bottom line, my top line. I can make a call if I'm going to help somebody out. Once you've got 58 doctors and 950 employees, it's a lot harder to make these little judgment calls. So uh, you can make it in your practice, but can other folks and how do you maintain that if you can? Yeah, so, so that's an important point. And one of the things I say to all the new physicians and all the new staff is we want fresh eyes to see situations and make it better and empower people. So I'd be really disappointed if a associate who'd been with us for one week didn't make that same call. And I would, you know, I'm, I'm pretty easygoing and I never want to make anyone feel bad about anything, but I would sit someone down and I'd expect any physician in the practice to sit someone down and say, you know, accommodate the patient. You know, that's the culture. We had a physician join us who's a senior partner now in his first couple, and he'd been in practice elsewhere. And in his first couple of weeks, 
he did an embryo transfer and there was some communication issue between him and the, and the embryologists and he was frustrated with it. And he walked into the lab and he started yelling at the embryologist and everyone like looked around and cracked up. Like, where the hell do you think you are? You know, that is not what happens at SGF. You know, if there's an issue, you'll, you'll come and discuss it and we'll explore it and we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. But that type of hierarchy, that type of, you know, bad behavior just doesn't exist. And what was great for me was it's organic to the practice at this point. So it's not that, you know, we're not a, a very hierarchical organization at all. And everyone who's been here a while gets the culture and buys into it and reinforces it. So, you know, it's, it's not just I could make that call or half a dozen physicians who've been here for 20 years could make that call. We, we, would, we empower people. The physicians know more about the business realities of this practice within a week of joining us than many physicians know, having worked somewhere for 10 years. And they've got a, you know, senior partner who's keeping everything close to the chest. So transparency and empowerment are at the core of our model. That's part of the culture, and you say it's organic, but as you start to grow partly by acquisition, and you talked about we had 58 positions, we had one leave in that whole time for personal reasons. I imagine that doesn't mean doctors of practices that you've acquired, but as you as you start to acquire practices in other areas, how do you make sure that it fits with that organic culture because you've grown it from the beginning. You're in the offices in the DC area, you and the, some, the, the founding members. Now, in, once you start to get to other states, you're further away from that base and you might be higher. You might be buying practices of people that have no problem dog cussing their embryologist in front of the rest of the staff. How do you, part ways with them if that's the case or get them on board? How do you decide what's the route there? So I think it first goes along with who do you partner with? So many of the physicians who have joined us or, or we've hired, we just know they're a good fit and that they're going to, you know, they've got the right combination of clinical skills, personal commitment, entrepreneurial instincts, and we want them on the bus. And when we're looking at a practice uh, to acquire, that is probably the most important issue. Will these doctors fit in with the culture? It could be a great business opportunity on paper, but if on a personal level, you've got a very egotistical physician who is never going to let go, um, it's a non-starter for them and for us. Because you know, But at the same time, we don't straitjacket, and the personality of our Tampa office and our Richmond office in Philadelphia will be, you know, different to, to Rockville. But there's enough commonality and we, so one of the other critical issues we have is we meet on a regular basis. So three out of four Monday nights, we have physician meetings. We have a clinical meeting, we have a journal club, we have a business meeting, everything is discussed. And as I said, it's important that transparency, so that helps build the culture. And one of the things, we, we had a very difficult situation a week ago, we had a deal with, and a senior partner in Richmond and a senior partner in Atlanta both spoke up in, in such a moving way to say, we get the culture, we get how this needs to be handled, and we're fully on board. And that may not have been the case. And I think it's a combination of we had the right people who we, who we merged with and acquired, and they 
got the culture and recognize that the greater good is served by all of us reinforcing it. So, so we're not competing with each other. You know, our compensation formulas are very well balanced and fair, largely rewarding productivity, you know, not seniority, not equity. In fact, the opposite is the case. You have to sell your equity at 65. We did not want to have top-heavy situation where you've got, you know, a 70-year-old physician working part-time and, and trying to take the lion's share of, of the income. You know, you're phasing out at 65. Of all the 20 equity-holding positions, do they all come to those meetings? Do they all go to the business meeting via video conference or whatever means? So, so not only that, but all 58 physicians come to the business meetings. Every Monday. Or every, excuse me, every business Monday, which is one. Yeah, so, so now we're probably down to two out of four Mondays a month we have a meeting because it does become unwieldy with 58. So now we have an elected board and no one has tenure on that board. So anyone can get voted off every two years. So we have seven physicians on a board that, that meets every Monday afternoon with our executive team. We have a shareholder group of, with everyone with equity, which is 28 physicians, and that, that's a quarterly meeting. And then a business meeting, I think we have one or two a quarter. All physicians, associated physicians, know our revenue, know our profit, know our expenses in detail from day one. And, you know, we've always held that transparency as a key to the culture. There's a reason why Dr. Levy talked about EngagedMD in this episode. This was long before EngagedMD was a sponsor. Dr. Levy helped found EngagedMD because he saw the need for it. He was willing to help in, enroll it in the biggest program in the country. And since then, their market share has only exploded to have an almost half of the centers in North America using engaged MD. Why did Dr. Levy help find it? Why did EngagedMD end up becoming a sponsor? Why have they expanded their market share so much? It's because it's a technological solution where we have long been aching for one, to have our nurses not have to do the type of pre-education of pre-treatment education that can be done in a module that is much better suited for the patient so that nursing time, provider time is personalized to the patient so that the patient can do it on their own time, enjoy their experience more, go back and learn again, come in with a much better foundation so that informed consents aren't being lost or taking time to make sure that they're each in the right file and and moved from one location to another. They're all in one place with a much greater informed consent too, because it's tied to a module that you can show that people watch. All of these things have made EngageMD what it is. And that progress has been amazing in the last three years. And if you're one of the few people that hasn't taken advantage of that in that time, you can by going to engagedmd.com slash griffin. You have to do the slash griffin. You have to tell them you saw them on Inside Reproductive Health. You don't, but it will get you a free assessment of your workflow, which is really good to do right now. It also helps us create more content for the show. So go to engagedmd.com slash griffin and enjoy the rest of this conversation with Dr. Lou Wexstein, Dr. Lou Wexstein from RSC of Bay on the show as well. And he talked about how those, his partners and 
the physicians at his group meet and they meet each Mondays and one Monday a month. They talk about business with uh, physicians. That's a lot harder. So I see the importance of having a group, but I can't stress the importance of reserving time for all of the partner docs to talk about business, not just, oh, let's, let's pick a time here and we'll get to it. But then so-and-so is on vacation, something happens with so-and-so, and then someone else is covering their patients. And those meetings that are supposed to happen every two weeks happen every six weeks or every two and a half months and so on. And the time of reserving the attention and focus for everybody to meet and talk about the practices of business, I, I don't think can be understated. And to me, it often seems that the smaller the group, sometimes very often, the less likely that is to happen. One of the things that we do as a company when we start working with someone is we need to make sure that they have the time, focus, and attention to, to, to be a part of whatever engagement that we go through with them, which is why we start off at a very small little level. And when people sort of can't get into that little level, they want to they jump forward and say, well, can't you just put together some service package for us? And I say, I'm not going to put together anything that is destined for failure. And if there isn't the ability of the leadership to say, okay, this is important, then there isn't the ability of the subordinates underneath them to say, this is what we need to be working on because we know it's important because the leadership is, is meeting on it frequently. How do you decide who gets on that board? You said it's not tenured, so people can, so, so sometimes people leave. You said it's 65, people start to phase out. It is is the board sort of a, a volunteer? We work with some bigger practices that they, they have like a marketing committee and some of the partners and they might have a finance committee and uh, other types of, of committees. But how do you decide who sits on the board? So it's elected by all the shareholders. So we have an election every two years. Which are the 28 physicians. Correct. So it, right now it's, it's different because you're a group that is entirely physician-owned, one of the concerns that a lot of people have is about the consolidation that's happening in our field from, from, from groups that are backed by private equity firms. And it would certainly be easier to become the, the largest fertility group in the, the country if one had private equity, that, that things can move really fast or venture capital for that matter. You haven't yet. So I'm assuming that means that there's some concern, but that's an assumption. Do you share the concerns about what's happening with consolidation? And if so, what are they? Yeah, so I think there are many facets to that. I was going to disagree with you that it would happen. You could become the largest group more quickly if you have private equity. I'd say the opposite is true because I think you get distracted by your know, quarterly performance and you have pressures that don't allow you to be as strategic, especially if they've got a short-term exit plan and they're trying to micromanage without the clinical insight and experience needed. You know, they may be very well-trained business people, but, you know, it's, it's you know, we're not widgets. And I, I think that to a certain degree, private equity has discounted, you know, the importance of individual physicians and, 
how much of an impact that has on the practice, that they appropriately motivate it. You know, we probably get two calls a week from private equity groups wanting to get into the space, and we've resisted that. At a certain point, we're going to have capital needs that we're going to have to address, but we've managed to finance it internally and with, you know, inter, you know and with bank funding. And it is tempting, to be honest, but I, I think that our structure is such that it precludes older physicians wanting to exit and get a nice multiple from private equity. Because if you're 35 years old and a new partner, you know, you're not as excited about private equity as if you're 60 years old. I happen to be 60 years old, but I like I, my primary responsibility is to the practice and to the 35-year-old doctors in our group. And I'd be outvoted, which is good. So I think looking long-term is, is important for future growth and private equity doesn't look as long-term. I am, you know, we recognize that there are probably four or five networks in the country, most of which are private equity backed at this point, and they are good competitors. But when I started in practice 28 years ago, a really lovely colleague in the area said to me, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you weren't able to join us because there was no space, but it's a big space and there are lots of patients and we'll all do well. And that was true then and it's true now. I think the market is underserved. I think we're too expensive. I think there are patients who don't have access to care who should be accessing care. And if we find ways to accommodate them, the whole pie grows and we'll all do well. Uh, not that uh, this could be an entirely different topic, but maybe it's worth it's worth bringing up because I completely agree that the market is underserved. We have, that I talk a lot on the show about the interior of the country, especially because I think we're seeing even more disparity. A lot of the younger REIs are moving to the DCs, Boston, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco. And very often the only doctors moving to the smaller markets are those that are from there. That they grew up there and they just want to be by their family. Those practices are having a much harder time recruiting folks. And I think that ultimately limits the number of people that they can serve in those areas as well. And this might be a little bit of a, of a, of a side topic, but you did talk about we're too expensive. I had Rob Kiltz on the show to talk about that particular topic, and I could probably have more guests just to talk about that. But why are we so expensive when so much of what we do is a cash pay? And the criticism of of healthcare and why healthcare's costs increase while most consumer technology cost goes down is that it's because you have the government or an insurance who's not really insurance because so much of their liability is mitigated by the government or someone else inflating the costs in in our field the majority of it is self-pay uh, at least for IVF and so why are we still so expensive? You're touching on a topic that I'm very passionate about. And, and I have always looked at ways to ensure better access to care. And if you look at our field, though, the rate of inflation in IVF is much, much lower than in other fields of medicine. One of the facts I'm most proud of is when we started the Shadros program in 1992, our package was $19,000, allowed up to six cycles, full refund if they don't have a baby. We just modified our shared risk program into three tiers. And for patients under the age of 35, we reduced the price from $21,000 to $19,000. So 28 years later, it's the same cost. 
That's, that's the opposite of what's happened in medicine. And by the way, as you'll obviously figure out immediately, we do much better because our success rate is double. So, you know, that's, so as technology improved, as it does in other areas, you should become more cost effective. I think the fact that there's such huge barriers to entry allows practices to charge more, which is problematic. You know, costs do go up in general, so our margins are lower now than they were 10 years ago. Our pricing has not kept pace. Um, I'm also very frustrated at the cost of medication. I think this is a problem across the board in medicine, but the cost of gonadotropins have more than doubled in the last 20 years, and certainly the cost of an IVF cycle has not come close to that. So whereas early on it was about 20% of the cost of an IVF cycle, now it can be 50% of the cost of an IVF cycle, especially when the prices are going to bash pharma a little bit here with this opportunity, but especially when you look in Europe, where the cost of gonadotropin is a fraction of what our patients pay here, that's very problematic. So I think our whole healthcare system is messed up. I do believe, and I'm not, I guess it's ironic given my career, but I'm not that much of a capitalist at heart, but I do, do believe in transparency and price competition. And I think the fact that it's a self-pay market has kept prices down. If you look at the cost of a knee replacement 28 years ago versus IVF, and you look at it now, it's exponentially higher with the knee the the rate of inflation with the knee replacement, the patients aren't looking closely. You know, I could go on and on about this topic. I'd love to talk to you about it again. I became very interested in it. In our practice, our health insurance is our biggest expense after occupancy. And we're now exploring becoming self-insured because we want to control costs better. And I think medicine has failed dismally at controlling costs. And I do think if you look at the rate of inflation, in infertility, it's much, much lower than medicine as a whole. I think that we definitely could have you back on about that, but it does explain why you got into some of these other ventures. And I want to talk about how one gets into those, because I think a lot of, especially principals of fertility groups have the opportunity to maybe be a co-founder of a, of a new software, a new EMR, or a new, um, maybe a new workflow software have the opportunity to get involved in physician-owned pharmacies or a number of different side ventures, sit on an advisory board for some large tech startup or existing pharma company. One of the things you started with this passion that you talked about, you started the Shared Risk Financial Program. Then you also helped co-found Donor Egg Bank. And I think you're involved with my friends at EngagedMD. How do you make those decisions to, you know, you've got your, your, your main focus, which is presumably the practice group. And then there are different ventures and there could be a thousand as the field meets technology and meets all of these new opportunities. How do you decide which ones are a good fit? What, what advice would you give for principals that are thinking about maybe getting involved in some sort of venture that is ancillary to their practice? I think we always do better in an area that we know well. So, you know, for me to say, I think I'm going to invent some kind of, you know, IT opportunity unrelated to infertility would be completely crazy and I'd be almost certain to fail. But I think if we have an entrepreneurial instinct and we see areas 
within our field that open up new opportunities. So I think the egg bank exemplifies that. And we pursue it with a vigorous focus, we'll be successful. So when the new technology for egg freezing was developed about 10 years ago, I think that it opened up a big opportunity with egg donation, where typically one egg donor was matched with one recipient, and it was extremely expensive. So egg banking allowed one to, to decrease the cost by less than half of what it used to be. And there was, was we were early adopters of it and started the egg bank in partnership with a number of, of other groups. Maybe a good place to conclude is with the, the, the model that you talk about, because you made a really great point, which is when you're 35, the private equity offer isn't so exciting. When you're 60, the private equity offer is a lot more exciting because the buyout is essentially one's golden parachute for retirement. And I have made this argument on the show very often that I think no small part of the reason why a lot of retiring physicians or doctors that are within five years of retirement are taking this exit because they don't have another exit because they don't have a doctor that wants to take over their practice, or if they do, there's trapped equity that the incoming doctor can't afford what the practice is worth. And even if they can, the expectations aren't set well. We've talked about that with Holly Hutchison on the show of why associate docs would leave after two or three years before ever becoming a, a partner and why that happens fairly frequently. So if for the I, I think maybe the the five to seven doctor groups because there's still a decent number of those and they haven't sold equity yet but they're probably around that age where they're really thinking about it. Does the Shady Grove model work for someone that size where you're getting people in? They're meant to be on a partnership track and then the older docs are meant to phase out, or is it too late if the doctors are at a certain age or at a certain career point? Yeah, so, so I, we refer to our constitution as you know, a critical component of our practice, and that's all embedded in our constitution, and I don't think it's too late for any practice. I think that you're absolutely correct that if the only avenue for exit in a significant way is private equity, and you don't have younger physicians who are going to purchase your equity in the practice, you're in trouble. So we have a very clearly defined internal multiple and exit. We've had three physicians or more probably at this point. So when I started the IVF program, I joined Art Sagaskin and Bob Stillman, who'd been our fellowship director at GW, joined us five years later. Both Art and Bob have now sold their equity in the practice. And that was very orderly. The younger physicians bought the equity. If they and and it's it's a win-win. They, they got a good you know valuation, and the younger physicians you know got a good deal being able to acquire that equity. So I think ensuring that 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 is in place at the earliest stage is a good idea. Can doctors do that like an owner-financed home? I buy the home from the older couple who's going into the nursing home. We don't get the banks involved. We get the we draft a contract that. Maybe I put down a down payment and I owe them directly as though I am paying them the mortgage and not the bank. Can it happen that way or does it have does do younger physicians typically have to get a loan in order to be able to buy that equity? So the way we structured it when physicians buy into the practice is we do the, the practice guarantees a bank loan for them. 
So, and it's it's a significant amount, but the return on that, and they own that equity day one, and the return of the profit pool that is returned according to equity pays more than pays that off for them right away. So we we ensure that they will do better from day one as a as an equity partner. They'll also purchase them. They'll be, and it's you know everyone can get about the same amount of equity in the practice. But someone who's got less productivity would not be able to afford to buy the maximal amount of equity that they could because it would be too expensive. But I think it could be financed internally by the practice. I don't think that you have to involve a bank to do it effectively. But I, I really do think that it's when we interviewing, it's interesting, you know, the, I think the incorrect stereotype applied to millennial physicians who are graduating fellowship is they want to check in and out. They want to get a nice salary. They're not interested in the business side, and they're not that focused on the long-term partnership track. Now, I think many of those probably exist, and those aren't the ones we'll attract. Most of the physicians who come to us from word of mouth know that they're going to have the opportunity to be true partners. It is important to them. They have to be productive and fit in with the culture in order to achieve that opportunity. But I think we have, in, a, in an era in which there are fewer fellows graduating than there are positions, so, so most fellows get multiple offers, we have almost our pick of the fellowship graduates who are not going into research, who want to be in clinical practice because of that model. I, I think that, that point of there are still so many entrepreneurial REIs coming out of fellowships, so many of the some some of the millennial REIs that I know, some of whom are still in fellowship, are among the most entrepreneurial that I know with their involvement in Silicon Valley, with it, they're following funds on Wall Street. They are really dialed in. I think from a recruitment standpoint, why it sometimes appears that way is because uh, these millennial physicians are going to Shady Grove. They're some oftentimes not going other places because you have a structure for them. A lot of times there isn't a structure in place and the ambiguity that was that sufficed 25 years ago doesn't suffice anymore. They need to go to a place that has a human resources department that ha- that's active on social media, that isn't using paper charts, that is forward thinking because I think very, I make the analogy very often that it's like buying the, the old house, but the, the work needed on the house is so much more than just the, the buy-in. And especially if there's going to be someone in place that's fighting you on the changes that you need to make before they retire, if they ever retire. And I think that, that you all have that structure in place, it seems. So Dr. Levy, I'll give you the final thought. What would you want to conclude on? I, I like that you countered my point that it would be easier to use private equity to to build the largest practice group in the country. You countered it because you've actually done it. So there is evidence that it's true. You said that you didn't set out to do that, but for someone who wants to grow or sustain their practice or your general view of the field, how would you want to? You know, one area that you had a question on, which we didn't touch on, which I'll finish with, is I think one of the other really key decisions we made early on is that Physicians need to be fully engaged, but they should not be the business leader of the practice. So we have a really superb executive team led by Mark Siegel as our CEO. And I think Mark had the vision and ambition to grow as big as we did. And we went along with him and supported it. So we have the right balance between not trying to micromanage 
I do see physicians fall into the trap of we know a lot about a little, so we assume we can know a lot about everything. And, you know, that's risky. So we have, you know, as you said, great HR, great marketing, you know, administration, accounting, you know, and we don't micromanage that group at all. The board meets every week with that team, so we know what's going on, and we involve the important decisions, but finding that right balance is critical for the right foundation for the practice. I spend 80% of my time practicing clinical medicine. I still enjoy it the most, which is why I keep doing what I'm doing. I certainly want to be involved, as do all our physicians. And lastly, I love the fact that you said that you're familiar with a lot of entrepreneurial young fellows and reproductive endocrinologists and you know, send them our way. But I wouldn't want that to be their primary driver. I, the right physician in our practice is going to do what's right for the patient every time. My favorite patients are those with sexual dysfunction where I send them home with a 10 cent 5cc syringe and tell them to inseminate themselves at home and they don't need us for anything. And we make, you know, because we're doing right by them, it's the most cost-effective treatment. And, you know, if everyone knows that that's what we're going to do, the practice is stronger for it because they're going to send their friends, our staff's going to know that's what's required, and they're going to act like that in every situation. And, of course, I love the patient where it's a complicated situation and we need to use all the bells and whistles of, techn- bells and whistles of the top technology to get a good result. But we've, we've got to tailor it to the patient. So do right by the patient, but be entrepreneurial and successful follow. Dr. Michael Levy, thank you very much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.